Bible's got you tied in knots if you're burdened with religious thoughts. Come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, yes, it is the Heretic Happy Hour, and I am Keith Giles. I'm one of your co-hosts here, and um, I'm excited about our series we are doing on sex. So that means, boys and girls, that you might want to leave the room uh, right about now because mommy and daddy are going to be listening to something a little um, inappropriate, probably, for your tiny ears. Bye-bye! But we also want to... uh, I also want to introduce my co-hosts here. It's not just myself here. Uh, It's also... uh, Jamal and Matt are joining me. So guys, say hi. Hi, friends. My name is Jamal. It's great to be back on the Heritage Cafe Hour with you. I'm an author of Free to Love and soon to be Living for a Living, who we, I think we just wrapped up uh, the final edits on that and getting endorsements for that. And I'm really excited about that book coming out very soon. Yeah, exciting, man. I think it's funny that we that we announced that this is going to be an adult episode, as if all of our episodes aren't. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Especially, especially with yours truly on the show and I fucking cuss all the fucking time. Um, right. <laughs> so, but anyway, really excited to be here on another episode. Yeah. And um, I want to very quickly um, thank one of our sponsors, the Hope Center. Um, this episode is sponsored by the Hope Center, a community resource center serving one of Alabama's poorest communities by providing a neighborhood market where neighbors can shop for food at no cost in an atmosphere of love and respect. Please Visit their website at servealabama.org for more information and to make a generous donation. Yes. And by the way, guys, um, I think if I, if we, if we were to break up our podcast into different seasons, you know, I think season one, one of the emphasis of our podcast was just to let people know that we have a hotline. Yeah. I remember that. And (laughs) that was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those days. (laughs) I I know. And one of the things I just pride myself in as far as just like, um, I really feel good about my just how I've been able to get the word out about that because we do like people I think do know about this hotline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so let me just let me just just for if you're a first time listener and haven't heard our announcement that we have a hotline, we do. And I'll give out the number. It's two four zero three four three seven three seven nine. And um we, you know, for those who have a rotary phone, we actually it spells out the word heretic, but we won't be going to that. So 240-343-7379, call it 24 hours a day, text. We can get text. People like to text now these days, the young kids like to text. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so like <clears throat> you can do that. Um, so I think, but but before we get into the text, I think we actually have a voicemail. So we get, can we have our engineer send that over? Hi, my name is Steven. I want you all to know how thankful I am for your podcast. I listen to you all every day in my office as I'm getting work done, which I find it hard to get any work done when I'm listening to you because I get into your messages so much. You all are doing such an awesome job at exposing the, what I like to call, white Jesus American Christianity, uh, the conservative type of evangelicalism exposing that, the hypocrisy, and then just flat out showing who Jesus is. It's so different. Jesus is so different from American Christianity. And I just really thank you all for what you're doing for these podcasts. You are giving the teachings of Jesus, which is something that hasn't been done for so long. And I just want you to know how much I appreciate it. I'm learning a lot from you. My wife is learning a lot from you. 
and we're sharing it with others. So thank you. Please keep it up. Wow. That was great. I honestly thought that great. would be a joke. I was waiting, I was waiting for the, uh, someone to like turn the corner there, but, uh, but, uh, no, he was dead serious and that's really awesome. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. But, but Jesus wasn't white. Uh, I'm, this is news to me. All the pictures I've seen of Jesus are white. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, I don't know what that's all about. But yeah. uh, <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, that's really awesome. I really appreciate the caller. Thank you for calling in and, and sharing that. I'm <clears throat> just sharing your thoughts. By the way, I just want to say this, like the Southern act, this, I, I heard a Southern accent in the caller. Yeah, I think so. I personally, man, I don't know what it is about the Southern accent. I actually really like it. I've always really liked it. I, I feel like there's, there's some kind of like, I don't know, sophistication or this like a, just real, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I like the Southern mm-hmm. accent. So it's really cool to hear that guy. And thanks for the love. And, and I'm really, really, we're really glad that you're getting a lot out of the book. Yeah. yeah, thank true, you so much. True that. True that. Okay, I do think that we got uh, a text in, a couple of texts. Uh, all right, let me go. Oh, man, that's hot. That's hot off the press. Okay. Um, quote, hey, guys, I'm really enjoying this sex series on the podcast because you are definitely addressing some issues that have been present in the church for a while. I listen to the podcast because I appreciate that you all tend to be open-minded and able to reflect on how the very privileges you have should be called into question when they negatively impact the church. My one suggestion is this next time you do a series on sex, it would be great to not just talk about how women are affected by the church's approach to sexuality, but invite one or more women to be part of the conversation beyond the heretic of the week interview. I so appreciated your thoughtful discussion during the purity podcast, but I couldn't help reflecting on how it would have been so much more relevant to me, a woman to hear another woman's perspective and not only men speaking on our behalf. Thank you so very much for all of the truth you speak in your podcast. All right. Well, well, I would say thank you for your text. And um, just so you know, we did try to bring uh, more women onto the podcast. And, and um, I hope it's okay to say this. We actually tried to get our significant others to join us, which I thought was a great idea, but uh, apparently they're not as... Um, they're not as outgoing as we are and uh, didn't really want to come onto a podcast, uh, especially for this topic, I think. But um, I mean, it's a good comment. And sure, we would be great if we could. Uh, we do our best to try to have as many different voices as we can when we do anything on the podcast. Um, but sometimes that's just not possible. You know what I mean? That you kind of like this is what we do. We're three guys who do a podcast together and talk about different topics. And um in some ways, I just kind of feel like, I mean, I, I, I don't want to apologize for not being something I'm not. Um, this is the- yeah, there we're three white males. We're three white males. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Jamal. <laughs> the whitest name, the whitest name I've ever, the whitest name I've ever heard is Jamal. Definitely, Jamal Jabanji. That white guy. <laughs> like you know how many people in Tupelo, Mississippi, are named Jamal? <laughs> but we are yeah. men. Yeah, that. But she's got it. We are men. We are men, and um, yeah. and not and then. Again, we're not we're not against women. We're not opposed to that. Of course, we uh, we've had lots of female uh, guests, and uh, we want to have more. So yeah, well, and 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 I and I thought Taylor did great and talked a lot about the purity culture and had a lot of really good things to say. So yeah, um, I I get the point of the text and I get the concern behind it, um, and I, I appreciate that it that this was. Um, uh, approach tactfully and respectfully and not just like you guys suck for being anti-women. Um, so thank you to the texter 
who um, who who approached us respectfully on that. Um, and we hear you. And but it was much more than just three dudes talking about the purity culture because I thought Taylor was fucking dynamite. That was one of my favorite interviews, and she had a lot of great things to say. Totally agree. Yeah. Okay, one more text, Matt. Um, can I, okay, it's hot. Can I hand this this fax to you, Matt? Can you read this? Do you want me to? I I can't read this thing. This is offensive. Wait, wait. This is the fax. How about you, Keith? Can you? Like, just be careful. It's hot. Um, I'm not sure I, I want to read I want, this. I want to hear Keith read it. <laughs> okay. But you've got to understand, please, audience, I am reading. <laughs> I am reading something that somebody texted. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, this is the text that we received. Uh, it says, is it necessary to ring that fucking piece of shit bitch ass bell every time someone fucking fucks a fuck? It's kind of distracting during the serious conversation bits. Fuck shit, asshole. Oh my god, Keith! Wow. I'm uh, just reading, just reading what they give me. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't make the news. I just, re- I just re- read it. Yeah. Well, thank you for the uh, um, very enlightening text. Um, but yeah, we, I, I, you know, that's what I, that's what our producer does. So uh, you know, fuck that guy. But that's what he does. Anyway. Well, I was just gonna say, like, I mean, I think he brings up a good point. Like, we when we started off the. The, the podcast, the the uh, the cussing part was sort of, we kind of made light of it. And that's why I ring the bell. And we talked about it going, talk about season one. It was all going into a swear jar. We were going to donate that to charity. And then, but that's kind of done now. Like we're, we're not okay, really, yeah. there is no swear jar. We're not really keeping track of anything anymore. No. Yeah. And I did make my donation. So I think we can. Yeah, we'll have to have a, uh, a board meeting about this. Uh, I think we should have a meeting with our um, our white, white male producer, <laughs> Ralphie Mundo, and see if we can maybe, uh, maybe we could retire the bill. Yeah, yeah. yeah, fuck off. Anyway, we have some announcements. Um, before we get into the meat of this show, uh, I just want to tell everyone that you guys can find us online at heretichappyhour.com. And that can be like your landing page for everything that the show produces. We got the store. Um, you can get the episodes on there. And we also have a Facebook group where we continue the conversations that we're having on the show. And so please look, uh, if you're on Facebook, go on to, um, you know, just search Heretic Happy Hour and you can join the group. There's a couple questions. Wait, Matt, Matt. What? Matt, is the is the Facebook group, is it connected to this podcast? Yes. Wait, I, I've heard a rumor that it is, but some people don't know that. Can you believe this? Yeah, some people are in the Heretic Happy Hour podcast <laughs> Facebook group and don't realize there's a podcast. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, if you're in the group, God dang it, listen to the listen to the podcast. All right. But yes, we have a Facebook group and one last announcement in four days from the time that this releases. Keith and myself are going to be flying down to Orange County for our first ever fifth live show. Yes. And that's going to be this Saturday, February 23rd from 6 to 9 p.m. at Sidecar Donuts Workspace in Costa Mesa, California. And we have an event page on Facebook. Uh, if you want all the details, if you're in the Facebook group, we will have we'll be posting the details in there so you can make sure to mark that on your calendar. And these uh, these live events are super fun. And also, uh, we are going to try, if, if our producer can get his fucking act together. Oh, shut up. We are going to try to be doing a live stream of the show for the Facebook group. And so if you're not in the uh, Southern California area, um, you can check that out in the Facebook group and you can join us live via the beautiful thing called technology. Yes, it is a beautiful thing. And hey, guys, if you cannot get enough of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and and truly, who can't? It's so addictive then you need to go to our Patreon page and um, make a donation and support what we do. And we will give you bonus content out the yin-yang. You will not believe. We record bonus content. We record bonus interviews. 
We have so much awesome, cool stuff up there. You got to check it out. Um, and we also want to thank, we have some new people who decided to support us. So I want to thank uh, our new patrons, Carl Angoli, Robert Riker, Greg Ballou, Jeff Mason. Hey, Jeff. And Caleb Kirklevet. Kirk, no, Kirk, Kirkleet. Kirkleet. I'm going to say Kirkleet. Uh, thank you. No way. Is that, is that the Caleb I'm thinking of? Of course it is. How many Caleb Kirkleets could there be? My man, Caleb. I, man, I miss that guy. I love That's so awesome. Anyway, thank you all for your support. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And guys, okay. So we're doing, you know, we've been in the sex series for a while and we are doing a, uh, I guess the topic of this week is going to be on the uh, LGBTQ issue. Um, and so we we felt like, and we're just talking, you know, amongst ourselves and we're just like, you know, who, cause we try to get heretics of the week, you know, that come on our show that, you know, can, can coincide uh, to some degree with the topic of what we're talking about. So we've like, man, what would it be like to get a straight white male uh, perspective on the LGBTQ issue? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, introducing the heretic of the week. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I am Eric Rayton and I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi Eric. <laughs> Eric, we are so glad that you have decided to join us on the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We're, um, we try- I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we tried this a couple weeks ago and we had some technical difficulties. So now that we're here, we're super stoked for that. Um, what we like to do is basically just start off with our guests by asking them the question, why is it that some people consider you a heretic? It's my sinister consistency. <laughs> oh, I like that. Wow. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, actually, that's a um, uh, an expression that Karl Barth used to describe Friedrich Schleiermacher, who's one of my heroes. Schleiermacher is this 19th century progressive theologian. And Barth took him on and he called him uh, or he called his work a uh, work of sinister consistency. <laughs> and um, more specifically, in um, throughout my career, my career has really been about uh, exploring the implications of the Christian love ethic and the idea that God is love in various domains. So I started out uh, in grad school, my PhD dissertation was exploring the implications of the Christian love ethic for what I, I called the dilemma of defensive violence. You, ha- you come across a, an unjust aggressor attacking a victim and you're supposed to love both of them, mm. right? And if you intervene with violence, you're not loving the aggressor as you should. You, if you don't, uh, the argument is you're not loving the victim mm. as you should. And my solution was to say that um, uh, as Christians who want to live out the love ethic, we're called to become experts at nonviolent methods of intervention. Mm. And uh, people called me naive for that, but no one called me a heretic. Mm -hmm. Um, I then turned my attention to criminal punishment, and I argued that uh, an approach to criminal punishment that was uh, in line with the Christian love ethic would be reintegrative. It would aim to reintegrate the criminal back into the community. Yeah. I wasn't called a heretic for that. But uh, I was giving a job talk at um, Calvin College on this theory of punishment. I was uh, being interviewed for a job. And in the question and answer period, someone asked me, so what implications does this view of punishment have for divine punishment mm. of sinners? Mm. 
And this was back in uh, like 93, 1993. And I hadn't started exploring universalism yet, but my sinister consistency immediately jumped in. And I saw the implications uh, almost at once in this big picture. I've been working on criminal punishment. What were the implications for divine punishment? And I didn't come out as a universalist then, but it didn't take me too long afterwards to come out as a universalist. And then people started to call me a heretic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, another thing they've called me a heretic for was when I started to explore the implications of the notion that God is love for um, the question of how would God reveal. And my argument is that a God of love would primarily reveal in persons, not in a text. Mm. And that we would learn the most about God through the messy business of trying to love one another, as opposed to through reading a book. Um, And in other words, I was rejecting in this way the the, uh, doctrine of biblical inerrancy, the doctrine that the Bible is the primary revelation of God. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. Well, now 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 you've done it. <laughs> wow, uh, Derek! I just, want, uh, Derek! I just want you to know I love you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, for that I was called a heretic. And one of the ways in which I uh, actually explored that issue was through um, a consideration of of same sex relationships and same sex marriage, mm-hmm. and um, in terms of. My most recent book, The Triumph of Love, is about same-sex marriage and the Christian love ethic and trying to work out the implications of a Christian love ethic with sinister consistency in uh, relation to our our LGBT neighbors. Uh, Primarily, my focus was on primarily in this book on gays and lesbians, not on bisexuals or transgender persons, because the issues that arise... Uh, for same-sex marriage, which was my focus, um, for gays and lesbians is a bit different. And I wanted to to sort of focus my energies and not... Um, but in any event, um, I was thinking about same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships and what does the Christian love ethic tell us. The first thing that uh, I think the Christian love ethic tells us is that we need to pay attention to our uh, LGBT neighbors and we need to pay compassionate, empathetic attention to them. And we need to be responsive to what we learn from such attention. Um, and mm-hmm. I think when we do that, we cannot uh, lovingly sustain the traditional categorical condemnation of uh, same-sex intimacy. I think the lessons of compassionate attention um, if we prioritize those lessons and really take them to heart, um, don't allow us to continue uh, to categorically condemn all same-sex relationships. Uh, The lessons of that compassionate attention, which love demands, um, on the contrary, call us to make uh, the goods of marriage available to same-sex couples. So that's the... um, uh, that's the argument in my most recent book. And when I started making that argument, 
Um, I was called a heretic with more force and more vitriol <laughs> than I had ever been called a heretic before about anything else. Um, among other things, I wrote this um, um, this essay for, well, I originally wrote it for uh, Religion Dispatches, but then it was reprinted in The Humanist. Uh, it was about, uh, it was during this period when there was this spate of highly publicized uh, suicides by young gay men. I don't remember how many years ago this was, but do you remember there was this period of time there was just one after the other? And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they were highly publicized. And, and then one of them hit very close to home. Um, in Norman, Oklahoma, uh, there was a... Um, um, the city was uh, going to declare LGBT month or something like that. And the city council was meeting to discuss this. And uh, that city council meeting brought out the haters, right? And uh, it also brought out this young man um, who uh, was gay. um, And he thought in a certain sense that he had escaped the hate the the vitriol when he graduated high school and then he in the city council meeting saw just this barrage of hate um among Mm. adults uh in his community and he was so demoralized by this that he went home and killed himself and Mm. um i wrote about uh that incident and about um uh Christian, what what does Christian love call us to do? And yeah. my uh, my argument was, well, first of all, we need to pay compassionate attention, um, and if we may, if if we prioritize uh, the rigid interpretation of a static text of a passage in a static text over the lessons of love, we have chosen. Um, to forego living by the love ethic in favor of some other kind of ethic. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, mm. um, and so my argument is that there is an epistemology of love, if you will, that's a fancy philosophical term for, um, uh, right. uh, love teaches us how to form beliefs and mm. the urgings, uh, uh, of, uh, that come from, compassionate listening um, have priority over abstract theories like natural law theory, have priority over um, abstract theories like the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Um, When you begin to um, uh, put those things above the lessons of compassionate attention, you have left the love ethic behind. And if if a book like the Bible teaches you to love your neighbor as yourself and a certain theory about the book, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, uh, uh, encourages you to plug up your ears with Bible verses so that you don't hear the anguished cries of your LGBT neighbors, then I think you've got the wrong theory about that book. Yeah, I, Amen. Uh, yes. Eric, I, wanna, yes. I wanted to ask you right. 
And I, I yeah. kind of, you're, you're kind of headed this direction anyway, but I wanted to ask you some specifics. So, mm-hmm. and I know this, all three of us know this by experience. Um, those who call you a heretic because you take the stance that you do uh, on same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. you, you and I, and we, you know, we all here know the reasons why they do that. And, and you, as you've alluded to, it's because they, they can open their Bible and point their finger on a passage and read a verse that in their minds is telling them mm-hmm. uh, that they have a God-given mandate to condemn people who are gay. And so I'm curious, do you, do you make any attempt to reason with people based on an exploration of those scriptures and what they do and don't say, or do you just sort of leave that there and take a different approach? Primarily in, uh, in most of my work, I, because I'm a philosopher, I'm not a, um, a biblical theologian. I primarily take a different approach, but that doesn't mean that I, I can avoid looking at scripture and looking at the text. And I do in my, in, in the, my most recent book, I do have a chapter that's devoted to scriptural issues, uh, but it's just a chapter in a much larger line of argument. I mean, my, I have an overarching argument, which is, all right, this is the love ethic. Um, I then uh, try to work out what the love ethic teaches, and then I apply it, and I reach these conclusions about same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. And then I say, but these are only tentative conclusions. We need, this is standard philosopher approach, we need to consider objections before we can take these conclusions and, and run with them. And one objection is that there's this contrary argument derived from scripture. So how strong is that contrary argument? So that's one of my chapters in the book is I, is I look at the, the scriptural texts, but you know, not being a biblical theologian, primarily I draw on others for the sort of close analysis of, uh, of, what it what these texts do and don't say and primarily my strategy is to say okay look there's debate about mm. what these texts say they're not as straightforward right. as, as as people argue and when there's debate about what these texts say uh it's uh to to treat these texts as if they trump the lessons of love is problematic even if you're a biblical inerrantist. Mm. And here I'm I return, I'm once again in my own domain. I'm approaching this as a philosopher. I ask, okay, it's only if you adopt a doctrine of biblical inerrancy. It's only if you adopt that theory about what kind of book the Bible is that you are led from a tiny handful of texts to the conclusion that same-sex relationships must be a sin, right? It's an, and it's a very tiny handful of texts, right? Minuscule. It's barely mentioned in the Bible. Um, but, it's a ti- but it's a tiny handful of texts. And even if we set aside the disagreement about what those texts actually say, um, it's only if you adopt a certain theory about what kind of book the Bible is that those texts uh, would have the power to trump the lessons of love. And that theory is just not the most plausible theory (laughs) based on the content of the book itself. Um, 
And uh, based on, uh, as I talked about uh, earlier, what would a God, how would a God of love love reveal? Mm. Right. And at the end of that chapter, I actually tell a story um, from my daughter's uh, earliest uh, time here on earth, um, which uh, I think is a, is a, a parable uh, with a certain amount of power for uh, critiquing biblical inerrancy. Um, when my daughter was a baby, we couldn't get her to sleep uh, through the night in her crib. She wanted to be uh, next to mommy and daddy. And it got to a point, uh, she was old enough that we decided you know, it's time for her to learn to sleep through the night in the crib on her own without being comforted to sleep. And we had read a book that uh, we had used with my son. Uh, and the book gave instructions on how to do this, right? How to get your child to sleep through the night in their own crib. And the strategy basically, which we had used successfully with my son was you put the the, the baby in the crib or the child in the crib Um while they're crying, you come and check on them uh, every few minutes, comfort them with words, but don't pick them up. And you keep doing this until they fall asleep. And the idea is that they will now then learn to put themselves to sleep. And that's good for them. And it's good for the parents too. So we were going to try this. Uh, it worked well with my son. And we started with my daughter. And the first night... We got up every few minutes as she was standing at the edge of her crib screaming um, and said comforting words and went back to bed. And we continued doing that all night long. (laughs) She did not stop screaming. She never stopped screaming. It went all night long until the next morning when finally I took her out of her crib, put her in her exer saucer. Uh, This was 6 a.m. And she promptly Mm -hmm. fell asleep in the exer saucer. The next night, identical the third night exactly the same thing and her behavior during the day was changing she was not the loving happy child that she had been right it was and my wife and i looked at each other and we said you know what (laughs) this is not that important right um We need to pay attention to our daughter and what our daughter is telling us through her behavior, through all of this, and not listen to this this damn book, right? And what it's telling us. Um, It might have been right for our son, but it's not right for our daughter. And so we threw out the book and we went back to comforting her, putting her to sleep and all of this. And, you know, guess what? She's now uh, 12 years old and she (laughs) sleeps through the night in her own bed. She's fine, right? You know, Um, but... If we had dealt with this by just putting in earplugs, I don't know what the result would have been, but uh, I don't think it would have been good for her because she was not ready. Mm -hmm. Um, If we had dealt with the problem by just saying, well, the book says, (laughs) uh, we would have been paying more attention to the book than to our Mm. daughter. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you drawing some kind of an analogy? (laughs) (laughs) Between people just listen to what it looks right. like rather than the yeah. way people feel. Right. We've and if we had been paying more attention to the book than to our daughter and 
um, what our uh, what compassionate attention to our daughter was telling us, that would have been a shortcoming of parental love. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And yes, that is an analogy <laughs> for what for what is happening uh, so often with uh, biblical inerrantists in relation to their LGBT neighbors. Mm. They, are, uh, they are listening to the book uh, and hardening their hearts against their gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender neighbors. They are listening to the book uh, or above compassionate attention or in worst case scenario, they are using Bible verses as earplugs so that they don't mm. pay compassionate attention at all. Well, um, Eric, mm. that's, <clears throat> that's beautiful. By the way, this is Jamal here. So it's great to have you on the podcast, but I've been loving what you, what you're sharing here is so good. Um, you know, I always, <clears throat> I always chuckle when, um, people, you know, talk about the love ethic ethic as if the Bible, um, invented that. And, I just find it, you know, I've actually heard a politician uh, during the last presidential election. It was actually a really clever response, but someone said, you know, do you use the, do you go, is your, does the Bible govern your life? And he goes, well, you know, honestly, I don't, I didn't have to read it in the Bible to love my, <clears throat> to love my family. Uh, I didn't have to read it in the Bible to, mm. to be a decent human being. Like if you have to read that in a book, then I would question how sincere it is, you know, and that's, and, and, and I feel like ev- all people, when they get to their basic essence of who they are, like, we, I don't think people really need to be taught what, <clears throat> what love is. They just need to recognize it. I think the easiest example is probably, you know, anybody who's a parent, when you see that baby, you know, it, it's not that love and acceptance. And it's really a profound acceptance in a healthy situation. Obviously a parent will accept that baby. It has nothing to do with um, belief or, lifestyle or choices of that child at all. It's just, you exist and I accept mm-hmm. you. And, and I find that that can, I just, it's interesting that that changes over time, you know, make child will grow up and, you know, take on political opinions that may be different from the parents and the parent usually again, in a health situation, you mm-hmm. know, can recognize, Oh, we just don't agree on that, but it does never call into question my acceptance and love and value for that person. And then, um, right. And then, you know, I, I find it interesting that at some point, though, um, when it comes to the sexuality question, so, so, you know, somebody who identifies as gay, uh, lesbian, you know, transgender, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to call it, then at that point, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that, that people will then say, well, I can't associate with you or I don't agree with you. And now somehow the acceptance is based on belief, which I believe to be, it doesn't have to be even be a sexuality issue. It could be anything, a political issue. It could be a difference of doctrine. You know, we have mm-hmm. heaven for, I mean, we know in Christianity that people cut off relationships from far less, you know, with don't, you know, you don't, you're a universalist. Mm-hmm. You're not, you believe this about the end times. You, this person believes something different. So there's all this argument, but I find it interesting. Um, and this is what, I guess my question to you in this is, do you think it's possible? And so it's a, it's a question of judgment. So like, is it possible to hold a non-judgmental approach to somebody and say, you know, I have no judgment over you and your, as a person, I accept you fully. I love you fully yet still not be affirming of, so like, can, can, can somebody remain in a non-judgmental, totally accepting place um, and just say, yeah, but I just don't see the same. I don't agree with your position on that, or I don't see things eye to eye. In the same way that you know, a Republican say, you know what, I I just don't have the same political views as my Democratic 
spouse that, that holds is, is a Democrat. But yeah, I yeah. still accept you and love you, but I, I'm just not affirming. So can somebody be totally accepting living by the love ethic um, and yet not be affirming of the homosexual lifestyle? What's your, what do you think about that? Okay. Um, I actually talk about this in connection in, in my book. Uh, I have a chapter on um, loving the sinner, but hating the sin. And, you know, this slogan has been uh, horribly misused sure. against LGBT persons as just an excuse to um, other them, to marginalize them, sure. to abuse them. Uh, but I think that the, that the principle itself is an inescapable, unavoidable part of trying to live out the love ethic because um, – you cannot, I think, live out the love ethic uh, without standing in opposition to anything that um, uh, that is contrary to love, that is contrary to love for our neighbors. So, you know, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. talked about loving the racist while condemning racism, for example, uh, he was... Uh, describing what you have to try to do uh, as someone living out the love ethic uh, if you are going to take a stand against racism. You have to take a stand against racism if you're going to live out the love ethic, and you have to love the racist if you're going to live out the love ethic, right? And so you have to figure out how do you do that? How do you do that? Uh, And so I think love the sinner hate the sin is an essential principle, but I try to turn that principle a bit on its head uh, because just because it is always possible to love the sinner while hating what really is a sin, it doesn't follow that you can take anything whatever to be a sin without it interfering Mm. with your capacity to love a person. And um, so if if condemning something um, by its nature gets in the way mm-hmm. of loving your neighbor, that is evidence that the thing being condemned is not a sin after all. Um, mm. So um, because you can always love the sinner while hating what really is a sin, uh, if hating something gets in the way of you loving the person, then, well, either uh, you're not just hating sure. the behavior uh, or or there's something about um, the behavior that you're hating that uh, that makes it that makes hating it at odds with loving your neighbor. So for example, I mean, just a simple example, can I really love? my diabetic neighbor while hating the sin of using insulin. (laughs) Right. Hmm. Right. Right. I mean, if I taking the use of insulin to be a sin interferes with my capacity to love my diabetic neighbor. And that is evidence of the fact that insulin use is not a sin. Hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. Right. And, And what I have found is that sincere loving people who are convinced that all homosexual relationships are sinful who 
tr- uh, want to love their LGBT neighbors, sincerely want to, uh, but feel committed to categorically condemn mm-hmm. their most intimate, meaningful, life-enriching relationships, find themselves in a situation where they are uh, compelled by what their preacher, what the Bi- what they think the Bible teaches them, to behave in ways that interfere with their capacity to authentically uh, achieve what they want to achieve in relation to their LGBT neighbors, that is, love them. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, they come with the most loving intentions, but they have this belief that is interfering with their capacity to live out those intentions and uh, and on the ground uh, behave in ways that are genuinely loving. Totally, totally. I think if I were to um, you know, clarify, not I, I think it's one thing to obviously labeling something as sin uh, could be. I mean, I would I would assert that it is a, a form of judgment, saying something is sinful is a judgment call. But do you think it's possible to not have a judgment call, just not simply be affirming? In the same way to say it's not a, it's not a sin to be. You know, if you're a conservative politically, it's not a sin. You know, somebody wouldn't say, "Oh, you hold you know liberal positions on healthcare." So that no, not necessarily a sin. It's just not affirming. Is it possible to not be affirming and without labeling something a sin, in a judgment call way? Okay. Yeah. Um, Well, one of the things that I guess I want to say to that is, if you are not affirming someone's political position um that is somewhat different than not affirming their most infinite intimate meaningful loving relationship right um it's a matter of if you withhold affirmation from a political view the the place that a political view has in a person's self-understanding is not always, but often quite different than the place that a loving relationship has. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter uh, often of identity, uh, of who the person is. Now, with uh, LGBT persons, they can adopt, I mean, well, it's possible under certain conditions to not affirm something that is part of a person's identity and therefore in a certain sense not affirm who they are but do so out of love because the identity that you're not affirming is a destructive identity that is a a self-understanding that is corroding them right and so you're not going to affirm that uh uh that self-understanding because um, it's corrosive. And so you can be genuinely loving in withholding such affirmation. But if something is an aspect of someone's identity and it is not a corrosive uh, feature of their identity, but an enriching feature of their identity, something that makes them their best self, something that makes their life better than it would have been before, and you're withholding affirmation from that, that's a bit more problematic. You are withholding affirmation from a part of who they are that is tied to their best self Mm -hmm. and their best life. So I have some some worries there. Mm -hmm. 
it's a it's a what I'd say is it's a it's a hard trick to withhold affirmation uh, when it's something like that, uh, and yet still come across as genuinely loving that person uh, fully and richly and robustly. It's a hard mm-hmm. trick to pull mm-hmm. off. Yeah, uh, maybe it can be done, yeah. but it's a hard trick. Yeah. No. Yeah, I totally agree with all that. I'm so glad that uh, that you're out there um, talking about these things, Eric. And um, you know, you mentioned your book Triumph of Love, and I'm I'm really happy that Whippenstock put that out. Um, and and mm-hmm. it's such a uh, such a blessing to have. Um, can you tell our listeners what you're working on now and what you've got going on in the coming months or years, or, or, or that um, that you're excited about that you're particularly amped to get out there? Well, I've been thinking that I should more formally and in greater depth write up my um, uh, my thoughts on on the implications of the idea that God is love for divine revelation and what we should expect from divine revelation. That's something that I've touched on in um, I, I touch on it in the Triumph of Love. Um, you know, I, a few pages on that, on the scripture chapter, uh, I touch on it actually in my first book, um, response to the new atheist is God a delusion. Um, I don't remember exactly the context a few years ago, I wrote, (laughs) um, but I touch on it there. And, uh, I actually gave, uh, when I was the, uh, few years back, the president of the central states philosophical association, I gave my keynote. Uh, presidential address about that topic, but I haven't sat down and really written that um, extensively. So I'm thinking that something uh, on basically the philosophy of revelation and its implication for uh, how one views scripture Mm. um, would be uh, a next major project of mine. But I'm also following through right these days on um uh the whole issue of marriage because there's this argument that you see both on the left and on the right that the case for same-sex marriage is also a case for what's commonly called inclusively plural marriage right polygamy polyamory and this sort of thing and i'm not convinced by that uh and so one of the thing i'm things i'm uh i'm exploring right now in my research is after same-sex marriage what else does uh does a a love ethic call us to to endorse polygamy um my own thinking is is no um part of part of the reason is actually comes from my fiction writing john gardner in the art of fiction uh, thinks that the ideal number of characters to have in a story in terms of main characters is three. If you have, because if you have two, there's only one relationship to explore. But if you add a third, you've got six relationships to explore. Mm. Because you got A's relationship to B, B's relationship to C, C's relationship to A, A's relationship to the B-C pair, B's relationship to the A-C mm. pair, et cetera, right? So you add a third person and it becomes in fiction, a much richer, more complicated terrain to explore. But I think the same is true in relationships. And if you have a partnership 
of two, you've got one relationship to, to manage. You add a third, you've got six relationships to manage. And that can be uh, overwhelming and it's, I think, by its nature, less stable uh, unless you impose hierarchy on it, right? Parents can do it with children because it's hierarchical. Um, but you don't want to impose hierarchy on an intimate love relationship. And so uh, for, for reasons like this, I'm, I'm trying to make a case for monogamy, if you will. And um, uh, 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 that may culminate in an article. It may culminate in a book. I don't know. Wow. Sounds amazing. Mm. All that sounds super interesting. Awesome. Yeah. So, Eric, mm-hmm. we loved having you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a blast. Yeah, that was my pleasure. Was awesome. Yeah. My pleasure. Wow, that was awesome. Thank you, Eric. Absolutely. It's some really good stuff there. My favorite part was when you were talking about um, how a God of love, you know, if, if there was a God of love, how how would a God of love communicate to uh, his creation? And I think that was a beautiful, it's a beautiful thought. And I think it makes so much sense. You know, we have a God who's love and he's relational. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Which, um, you know, it's going to take us right because, you know, right into our podcast episode topic. And yeah, it's, this is a, it's such an important topic. And I think we've, the three of us individually have, have spoken in, you know, in uh, affirming uh, the gay community. And uh, we've, we've even alluded to it several times on the podcast over this what, year and a half. We've been doing this now. And um, so it is important. And I think it's important mainly because of the, the real lives that are damaged and affected by some very destructive um, teachings that the church has had for for pretty much, I guess, uh, a very, very long time, hundreds of years, a thousand, couple of thousand years now, we've um, treated people who were uh, gay, uh, who were homosexual, uh, lesbian, you know, bi, trans, uh, in, in horrific, horrific ways. And so on the one side, it's important for us to speak up and affirm and to correct some of that and apologize for some of that and also to clarify you know, I think a lot of the teaching and uh, has, that's that's created this behavior um, within the church is coming from a place usually of grossly misunderstanding some of the texts, or uh, sometimes very much on purpose obscuring the true meaning of some of those texts. You know, to really kind of use the scriptures as a as a club. And there's a reason why some of these verses are called clobber texts because they they're they are really used to assault people right. emotionally and physically and spiritually. And it's just a really horrible thing. Well, and that's, and I'm glad you, you start by, by mentioning what you mentioned. It's like before we get into, you know, what the Bible says or what our pastors say or what church history says, we need to rightly acknowledge that um, real lives have been affected in real traumatic, horrible ways. And I think that's when we can step back from what the Bible says and we can actually listen to people in the LGBTQ community, people who uh, maybe have kids who are gay or lesbian or bi or what have you, and and listen to their stories first. Um, you know, who cares what the Bible says at, at first? And I know I'm going to, you know, people are going to say, I, I was always waiting for that. Um, because when it comes down to it, what really matters is people. And what matters is their experience and how we treat them. And, um, 
you know, if we're going to be anything as Christians, we need to be loving and caring. And I know people will say the loving thing to do is to warn them about the hellfire that's coming, or we need to, um, you know, denounce and not affirm their sexuality. Um, and they would suggest that's the loving thing to do. But if you really step back and ask people in this community, that's not the loving thing to do because that's not what they're saying is loving. Right. And so if we're going to be loving, we need to listen to the people who we claim to love and ask them with empathy, are we being loving when we do this? Well, the answer is no. And so that's what we first need to do before we get, and, and we'll get into the biblical stuff, I'm sure. And, and Keith and myself, I don't know if I haven't seen any stuff from you written down, Jamal, in. But I know Keith and I have written uh, many blogs on the on the biblical passages and and the Greek context and you know all that stuff. But I, I'm just glad that Keith, you first started by saying it's important to listen to people and to look at the damage the church has done to any marginalized group, and the LGBTQ community has historically been one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of these things where, and, and this is kind of a recent thing for me. I think probably only in the last maybe two or three years that I actually started um, you know, affirming and writing and blogging about uh, this issue. So it took a long time for me to turn the corner on it. And it wasn't something, it wasn't easy for me. But what's really amazing is that once I started really digging into it, I'll be honest, I mean, I, I dug into it originally scripturally. You know, I, I, did, I, did, I did feel hung up on some of these scripture passages that, I mean, you know, hey, when I opened my English Bible, my English translation of the Bible, and I look right there, there it says, you know, there's the sentence that says homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom, right? Um, and so what do I do with that? Well, so again, that was that was my first sort of hang up. And, and, the, and sort of what ran in parallel for me was as I was looking into the scriptures and I found out, oh, the word homosexual didn't appear in the Bible in any English translation until 1946. Like, what? <laughs> like, oh, so that word shouldn't even be there. And then like, well, what are the words, what are the Greek words that are being translated as homosexuality? And you find out that Senekotai and Malakoi, whatever they mean, do not map at all to what anyone would consider homosexuality today. Like, so, and again, we can get into that a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit later into the, into the podcast here, but, but just re- recognizing that, oh, that word isn't even in the New Testament scriptures. Like that's, it shouldn't be there. And that's not even what's being addressed in those passages. Um, but again, in parallel to that, and this I think was God's grace to me, I started, well, honestly, what happened was I, I sent my first article where I was going to be affirming. Uh, I sent it to several friends of mine and asked that I respect. And I said, could you guys read this? And I really just wanted them to check me on my, um, I didn't expect them to agree with my conclusions, but I just said, you know, check me on my uh, my scholarship here. Like, am I really treating the scripture, the scripture fairly? Am I, am I saying this the right way? Just really more of that from that perspective. And I really didn't expect most of them to agree with me and affirm what I was saying. But the shocking thing was that all of those people came back and affirmed what I was saying. And several of those people that I sent it to actually said, can we have lunch together or can we have coffee together? And when I said, okay, and we sat down and had coffee together, they came out to me and I had no idea. Oh. Yeah. And so, wow. you know, it's one of these things where um, then it was the sudden realization, and this happened several times. So, like several people, um, some of them were trans, some of them were uh, were bisexual, some of them had, you know, struggled with um, 
same-sex attraction their whole life. And I mean, these are people I would never, ever have guessed. And so then that was the realization that, oh my gosh, I already, I already love a bunch of people who are Christian and gay. <laughs> um, I just didn't know that they were gay. Um, but I did not doubt that they loved Jesus. I did not doubt their faith and their, their um, devotion to the Lord. Uh, and so, and I, and I certainly didn't doubt them when they told me that this, this was something they had struggled with their whole life. So uh, it's sort of like as I was studying it academically, at the same time, I was being given real world evidence in my actual life um, that, yes, you can be gay and Christian. Uh, and these were not oxymorons. These were not, um, these were not you know, mutually exclusive concepts. So that was really great. That honestly is what helped me so much, I think, to be more bold in what I, what I was asserting in my articles. Yeah, I think all those are great points. And it just, um, it's just like a testifying to the fact that when people can trust um, those who are allies and those, you know, it's like you, you, can, you can get some real great truth and truth can be um, uh, realized and they're coming out. And, and I know you say struggling with same-sex attraction. It's only struggling because of how the church views them. But um, once you realize that you're, you know, once they realize you're an ally and you're, you're safe to come out to, it's like, it's no longer a struggle. We can be open and truthful yeah. about that. And I just think that's yeah. beautiful. You know, this is um, obviously <clears throat> very layered, nuanced topic. So um, I, I think there's obviously been such hurt. Um, and, you know, we all know this cause we all come from the Christian world. The Christian world does not deal with uh, minority anything very well. So, and, and that's not just because it's the Christian world. I just think it's <clears throat> part of the human dilemma, the human problem that we've had. I think just religion, you know, probably takes a magnifying glass and makes it much larger and, and, and more, more painful in that sense. But I think in the human dilemma, the hum- humanity over the course of history has not done well with accepting or, you know, tolerating um, people. Um, you know, it's just that the people, people are scapegoated all the time. People are looked to be excluded if they don't fit the norm, if they don't have, if they're not part of the majority, it's like, and so that has been an issue for a long time. And within the Christian world, you know, obviously anything that deviates from whatever subset, there's a lot of different subsets. So if you're in a charismatic church, if you don't have the outward symbols of, you know, what they would consider spiritual gifts, um, speaking in tongues, healing, all that stuff, then you're the oddball out and then you, you don't fit. You know, if you're in, you know, intellectual circles and you don't think that way, then you don't fit. So any group setting, uh, and this is true. I mean, you experience it. We experience it in school. You know, any setting that you don't fit the the normative popular club, then you're the oddball out. And so I do believe there's been a lot of damage, obviously, to the gay community and the LGBTQ community has felt that um, from the Christian world um, in, in, in very, very strong ways, but also from society in general. Um, because I do think this is the human dilemma. So um, what, I, what I'm really glad to see happening in this current age is this current day we're living in is I really do believe the pendulum is correcting the, the imbalance in that. So um, there's, there's just a, even, even what we're dealing with in the immigration issue, you know, we're, we're really becoming conscious of how marginalized groups are affected. I think it's very positive for the evolution of humans. I think it's a really good thing. It's loving to be aware of how marginalized groups have been affected. So I think that's positive. I think that really is positive. Anytime we bring in sexuality, however, 
to the conversation, there's many layers to it. Um, and there, it's nuanced. So that's, this is a conversation that can be sticky because, um, anything, I think there's, it's more, it's not just a, in my opinion, there's not just a black or white conversation. So I, I don't come at this Christians. And another thing you're seeing within Christianity is Christians have just are at a place where, you know, very primitive way of thinking is what does the Bible say about the subject? Because, and I, I know that's going to offend some people, but like the Bible doesn't say anything about anything. The Bible's not real. Because the Bible doesn't exist, right, Jamal? It's actually not real. I mean, I mean that. I mean, it's actually not real. It's a. It's literally some group of people in the fourth century, a selective group of people in the fourth century that claim to be speaking for everyone, invented a list of of writings written by many, many different authors over period of you know a few thousand years put it together as if it's one book and then you know it starts with Gen- genesis and ends with revelation i mean that is an arbitrary list that was not th- these writings were not ri- written in such a way that they were meant to fit together there's a lot of there's a lot of just magic and wish, wishful thinking and all that and, and then we present the book as if it says the same thing about something and it just doesn't so and you're and you're dealing with ancient mindsets you know First of all, I love I love the writings in the Bible. I think it's I think you can get a lot out of them. I think you can see inspiration in much of it. Um, I think there's just great cultural insight and all this kind of thing. But it doesn't really. I don't look at it like okay, give. I need to look at this book to tell me what is right and what is wrong. What what God approves of and what God doesn't approve of. So if you're looking at trying to understand sexuality from a book that it doesn't really exist in the form that we've been presented. It, it, it just doesn't. There was no such thing as the Bible until some group invented it in the fourth century. So I, it, it's really, you're really going to have problems trying to understand something and get your mind around something. If you're looking at a, a book that really doesn't exist in the form that, I mean, it's like these letters were not written in such a way that they meant to flow with one another. You're really, it's really difficult to make sense out of anything when you approach it that way. So um, I think you're seeing that reaction as well. So I don't look at the LGBTQ issue as, is it right or wrong? Which I think so many Christians are wrestling with that. They're saying, okay, it's right. And uh, again, and that's cool. If you want to say, oh yeah, it's right. Or it's wrong. And and if that's how you want to look at it, fine. You know, um, that's going to be, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. But like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a conversation of right and wrong. I think there's a lot of layers to it and there's some understanding we can come to about what does it say about humans? What does it say about sexuality? Um, and then we can go in that direction. If we'll, if we'll take it out of that lent, of that grid of right and wrong, what does the Bible say? What does God say? Cause I think that's just, we're not going to get anywhere in that conversation with that. Well, and it's, and it's kind of, to me, it's ironic. Um, because when you do, uh, go to the Bible, if, if that is your lens and you are, you want to, um, base your life and your worldview off so-called biblical authority, um, when you go to the Bible, I mean, there's really only like six or seven of these so-called clobber passages. Um, and, and I think maybe now would be a good time to at least address those for the folks who do want to know about those. And I, I know, Keith, you've written um, a bunch of articles on that. I've done the same, and I included a book or a chapter in my latest book on this issue. And from my research, and I, I've talked with Hebrew scholars and, and, and New Testament scholars, there's really no case to be made, even on the specific so-called clobber verses. So, for instance, like in Leviticus 20, 
you know, it's a, the, um, a man shall not, or a male shall not lie down with a male as he does with a woman. Um, you know, in, in the Hebrew, you have this sort of like wonky use of language where it's like, I think it's a, a zakar and a ish shall not lay down together. So it's not just this instance of like this universal law of a man and a man not lying down together. It's very specific. And when I've spoken with Hebrew scholars, they've said basically it's like an uncle shall not lie down with a nephew, a grandfather with a grandson. Um, so it's, it's, uh, again, if we're just going to be, you know, we speak English and many of us, that's all we speak. If we're just going to open our English Bibles and say, see, it's like, well, no, in Hebrew, that's not what it's being conveyed there. So that's just one example. And I know Keith, you've got some examples from the new Testament because I've read a lot of your articles on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, yeah. So I think that the two main things that there's two main words in the new Testament um, that Paul uses, um, Malakoi and Arsenikotai. And so um, Malakoi, what I find fascinating is Malakoi is a Greek word that typically is translated and used to be, uh, is effeminate. And I think even in the King James Version, which is pre, again, before 1946, no English translation included the word homosexual. So if you go back to tra- English translations prior to that, and you look at those passages like First Corinthians, um, what is it? Corinthians. Well, there's Romans in First Timothy as well. Can I just say one one quick thing about Romans? The ironic thing about Romans is that the the homost quote so called homosexual passage. I think it's verses twenty six and twenty seven of chapter one. Aren't even Paul, but that's an aside. Right, right. Well, let's get to Romans in a second. But uh, but on the on the Malachi, uh, it's First Corinthians, I think, uh, chapter six. So um, when when Paul talks about Malachi again, that word is is effeminate. And if we look at even people like Plato. Um, Aristotle, um, they use that word malakoi. So like Plato in his Republic wrote that he said, quote, too much music makes a man malakoi or soft, feeble, unfit for battle. Aristotle also warned about the dangers of men becoming too soft or malakoi uh, by involving themselves in pleasures uh, of um, like art and music and things like that. Um, in Paul's day, to a, especially in the Jewish culture, if you were a man and you shaved off your beard and had a smooth skinned face, you would be malakoi because you were, you were effeminate. You looked like a woman. You had a clean shaven face. So understand this is a cultural thing that was going on. And, and, and it was, yeah. Hey, Keith, I don't mean to interrupt you, but are you talking about worship pastors? Yeah. So basically uh, on this podcast, I'm the only one that's not malakoi. Uh, Matt and Paul are malakoi. So, but again, so understand here, um, this is a cultural thing, like in their minds. And also I got to, I got to stress this as well. In every case, not just in the New Testament, but in these other cases of Josephus and Aristotle and Plato and other, um, other ancient references to Malakoi, it was always a reference to a straight man who was, um, who had effeminate qualities. So in other words, it's like saying the way we would today, you'd say to, to a straight man to sort of insult him. You throw like a girl or you run like a girl. Um, and you, that only works if you're talking to a straight man, right, to sort of insult him or, or belittle him or put down or something. But again, this is not describing someone who is same-sex, same-sex attracted. This is not someone who's homosexual. Um, so, so, again, I don't think anyone, I hope no one with, a, with a, a clear mind would be comfortable reading 1 Corinthians 6, uh, and saying and reading, well, the Bible says 
Know you not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor someone, nor a man who shaves, has a clean-shaven face, uh, will enter the kingdom of God. What? Like, would we honestly believe that? So if I'm a straight man, but I shave my beard, and I like music and art and poetry, I don't get to go into the kingdom of God. Because, because that is what Paul is suggesting in that verse. So we would say, I, hopefully we would be intelligent enough to say, well, maybe this is a cultural thing that in Paul's mind, this was something that was frowned upon and that we would today treat Paul's words here the same way we would treat Paul's um, command multiple times when he says, I would I would that all men everywhere, everyone everywhere, would greet one another with a holy kiss. He says this multiple times. Well, we don't do that today. Why don't we do that? It's in the Bible. Paul commanded it multiple, more than once he said we should do it. Why don't we do it? Because we recognize this is a cultural thing. And in Paul's day, this was acceptable, and this was what they did. But we don't do that in our culture, so we ignore that passage. And I would encourage us to do the same when it comes to this word malakoi and this idea that if a man is effeminate, uh, he can't enter the kingdom of God. We now recognize that's just ridiculous. I would hope so. And, and that even if you didn't agree with that, you would at least agree with this, that, that malakoi is not referring to uh, someone who's homosexual. No, it's not. And even like going, you know, talking about first Corinthians, I think even Johnny, Johnny Mac mm-hmm. um, admits that the context yes. surrounding that. And, and he says it's you know, Corinthian, Corinthianizing is it, it's, it's all about shrine prostitution. And, 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 and so, and when you read the passage, you, you just look at all those, um, all the other things that keep you out of the kingdom of God. I mean, they're so coercive. So to all of a sudden, like, be talking about a monogamous yes um or polyamorous since we just had Chuck on I'm just fucking with you um you know but a loving but but a loving relationship that like that's so out of context um even if we really didn't know what the word meant but if we were going to say oh it's this and it's like well but all these other things are about like deception and coercion and all of a sudden now you're going to talk about like a loving partnership yeah. or something like that just that doesn't make sense so yeah, I think anyone honestly, I mean, you you know, if you're not affirming, you're not affirming, but anyone reading these things honestly cannot say that the Bible's clear, you know, because it's like, no, it's so, so, so not here. It's not. Yeah, and then 1 Corinthians 11 yeah. is another example where, because you hear this all the time, the argument is, well, look, homosexuality is not natural. It's unnatural. Yeah, do you know what else Paul says is unnatural in 1 Corinthians 11? He says, uh, doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame to him, but if a woman... Uh, has short hair, right? This is unnatural. This is, again, a category of what Paul would have said is, quote unquote, unnatural. So again, now we're condemning men who have long hair or women who have a, who have short hair, that this they're unnatural. And now again, they're under some condemnation that they can't enter the kingdom. Of course not. We accept. Well, I, I, would, al- I would also suggest it's kind of weird to talk about what's natural and unnatural, like on your smartphone and telling people what's natural by typing in your smartphone and putting something on Facebook. Like who gives a fuck what's natural and unnatural? Like, I mean, are you serious? Do you drive a car? I don't find cars naturally occurring in the world. I mean, goodness, that's just silly. But uh, as long as we're on this, as long as we're on this topic here, can I read something from our, one of my favorite uh, New Testament scholars, David Bentley Hart? Oh, absolutely. Love hearing from him. Love David Bentley Hart. And um, we did interview him. I can't wait. That'll eventually come out very soon. Um, but in first, he has some notes in his New Testament translation under First Corinthians chapter six, and he addresses um, the Arsenicotai, uh 
specifically the word of Senecata and Malakoy. So he says, um, I'm quoting him. He says, a man who is Malakos or Malakoy is either sought in any number of senses, self-indulgent, self-indulgent, dainty, cowardly, physically weak, or gentle, in various largely benign senses, delicate, mild, etc. Some translators of the New Testament take it here to mean the passive partner in a male homoerotic act, but that is an unwarranted supposition. Precisely what a Senecotai is, has long been a matter of speculation and argument. Literally, it means a man who beds, that is, couples with males, but there is no evidence of its use before Paul's text. It would not mean homosexual in the modern sense of a person of a specific erotic disposition for the simple reason that the ancient world possessed no comparable concept of a specifically homoerotic sexual identity. It would refer to a particular sexual behavior, but we cannot say exactly which one. And then he says, my guess at the proper connotation of the word is based simply upon the reality that in the first century, the most common and readily available form of a male homoerotic sexual activity was a master or patron's exploitation of a young male slave. Mm. So, um, and then I think he says, I thought there was another reference. I think he also references the fact that, um, uh, darn it, I thought it was right here in front of me. Oh no, I'm sorry. He, he says, yeah, he goes on to mention that the Clementine Vulgate uh, interpretation of the scripture, uh, the word of Sinekotai, yeah, it translates them as male concubines or prostitutes, and that Luther's German Bible uh, interpreted that word as referring to pedoph- pedophilia. And then he has one final note. He says, my guess at the proper connotation of the word is based simply upon the reality that in the first century, the most common and readily available form of male hermetic uh, sexual activity, uh, again, was uh, pedophilia. So anyway, I, I think to me, I, I really respect him and his scholarship. I think, I think if you really do get beyond sort of the rhetoric that comes through the pulpit or the Christian airwaves, uh, you really go and look at what the scriptures say. What you see is that what the scriptures actually teach is not a condemnation of homosexuality. I had someone yesterday on uh, Facebook. This is kind of funny. So, you know, Facebook gives you your birth, you know, all your friends list. It's their birthday today. So I, I, every day I kind of go through and I'll, I'll say happy birthday to these random people. I don't even really know most of them on Facebook. So one of these guys came back to me, sent me a message, and he said, thank you for the birthday wish, but you are not my brother in Christ because uh, I've seen that you affirm homosexuality and you are not true to the word of God. I'm like, oh, well, I said, actually, no, I am true to the word of God because the actual scriptures uh, don't say anything at all condemning homosexuality. I said, I guess I'm not as liberal as you. I don't accept modern translations that add words in there that aren't actually there because that and that's the odd thing about it is like if you affirm uh lgbtq people you are you are called liberal right you, you you're called oh you're someone that's you're accepting these quote-unquote new teachings and uh and you're twisting the scriptures when the, the, the irony is no if you are looking at that english translation and it's and it's something that word homosexual is in your bible you're actually you're the one who has a Bible that is twisting the meaning of that word uh, in a new way that it never did before. Oh, snap, son. I hear the terrain coming. I just feel, I really feel strongly the need to, to say this, that if you are gay, if you are trans, if, if, uh, if you identify uh, basically as anything other than straight, um, you're not broken. <laughs> that, like, I don't want to give this idea that, well, if you're that way, you're not, you're not normative. You're not natural. You, you have some trauma, some emotional thing you've got to work out. You're, you just, you're confused, whatever. But, you know, you know, eventually you could get fixed or you could get, uh, you know, unbroken or whatever. And I, I just want to affirm 
that is, I don't think that's true. And I, I think, um, I think to even put that suggestion over somebody who's already marginalized, who already feels, you know, uh, alienated from their family, from their church, from the body of Christ, uh, from society or anything like that. Uh, I wouldn't want anyone in that situation to feel that way, that you're not broken, you're not screwed up. Now, now and again, on one level, sure, we're all broken. We're all screwed up, right? Um, we all have st- issues and things to work out. I do too. Um, but it's not something, uh, it's not something that I would say is only like, uh, this is only applies to people that are broken, people that are screwed up. Those are people that are not straight, but straight people are, we're okay. No, we're, we all have our stuff to work out, but I would, I would want to affirm if you're gay, if you're trans, if you're homosexual, you, you know, you're, you're queer or bi or anything like that, you are, you are loved, you are human, you are whole, you are complete. Uh, you're not someone who needs to be fixed. You're not, you know, uh, you're not broken in that sense. Um, and I would want to affirm you as a human being and affirm you to stand up straight, feel like you belong in the human race, certainly feel like you belong in the body of Christ. And the fact that you're not straight isn't something that should prevent you from being a, uh, a loved, accepted, and affirmed member of the body of Christ or of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't, uh, couldn't agree with you more. Um, do you have any, uh, since we're going to wrap this up pretty soon, do you have any resources for people? I, I, I'll just throw one out there, a book by John Shore called Unfair, I thought was really good um, on this issue. I know Matthew Vines, he's more of a conservative writer, right? But he's kind of got the book, uh, I don't remember the title. Um, is it Gay Christian or Christian and Gay? Okay, but Matthew Vines, I guess, you know, if you're coming from a conservative background, I think he would resonate with you. Um you know, Keith, Keith, you and I have written a lot of uh, blogs. You can uh, blog entries on this. So I know you can go to your, your blog and my blog if, if you're curious about this question or the more theological um, approach, I suppose. Yeah, uh, one book I really like, and unfortunately I don't have it in front of me. Um, I think the author's name is Brownson or Brownlee. Uh, and it's Jesus, the Bible, and Homosexuality. Uh, or maybe it's Jesus, the Bible, and Sexuality. Um, but if that is that honestly for me, uh, I read tons of scholarly books that were both pro and against um, homosexuality. And um, that's the one book that I read that I felt like was, I mean, to me, it made the most sense. Uh, it was the most thorough. Uh, and I really loved that book. And again, I can't remember. I think it's Jesus, the Bible and sexuality. And I, I think the, the guy, the author's name is either Brownson or Brownlee. And I don't have it around me here. Mm. Is, it, is it Bible, gender, uh, and sexuality? James Brown? You know what? Yes, that's exactly what okay. it is. So it's Bible, Gender, Sexuality, Reframing the Church's Debate on Same-Sex Relationships by James V. Brownson. Um, wow, you just pulled that out of thin air. That was great. Google is my friend. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this has been a good episode. I'm glad we're having this. I'm glad that um, three white awesome. straight males can have this conversation. <laughs> that's We're qualified. That's what qualifies us. Yeah, and just saw... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, that naturally makes us qualified. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> well, it's been nice knowing you guys. <laughs> <laughs>